Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, She's also a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV, Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi. I'm very excited about our guest tonight because he's been on with us before, and I met him, I think it was about four or five years ago, and I was impressed from the minute I met him. He's brilliant. He's a great privacy expert. He's a wonderful consumer advocate and just a heck of a nice guy, and I am so thrilled that he's joining us. Let me tell you, and if those people who've listened before will be thrilled to hear him back again. So we're going to be speaking tonight with Chris J. Hoofnickel, who is now Senior Staff Attorney to the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic and Senior Fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. His focus is on consumer privacy law, and he was admitted to practice law both in California and the District of Columbia. And if you remember last time he was on, he was actually the West Coast Director for the Electronic Privacy Information Center back in D.C. Uh, he used to be in D.C. that he went to um, San Francisco. So he decided he liked our state, and we're so glad he's here. He's testified many times in Congress also on privacy and social security numbers, identity theft, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, security breaches, and before the Judicial Conference of the United States on Public Records and Privacy. Chris's past work has focused a great deal on financial services privacy, gender privacy, commercial profiling and telemarketing, commercial data brokers, and the privacy implications of emerging technologies. So we're going to talk about that. And he is a nationally known privacy expert. Besides testifying in Congress and before many um, administrative agencies, he is a regular contributor to the media. You're going to see him all the time on uh, TV, hear him on radio, not only on our show, but on many other shows. And he is a prolific writer as well. And I always enjoy talking to him, reading his blog, going on and seeing what he's doing. And he's always doing exciting things. So thank you for joining us, Chris. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thanks for that very kind introduction. 
So, Chris, the last time we talked to you, you were still with the Electronic Privacy Information Center. So what happened? How did this exciting thing happen that you are now uh, a senior fellow or senior attorney and uh, at Berkeley? Well, when I was at Epic, one of my main duties was to supervise our student interns. And I really found that that was my favorite part of the job. And so I came over to Berkeley to do that full time. And uh, so we have a clinic here at the law school where law students get to do real legal work and technology law, and I help supervise them when they work on privacy issues. What fun. Sounds great. Yeah. So are you, what other kinds of research are you doing there now? I'm doing a lot of work on security breach, uh, security breach laws because it's very likely that Congress will pass a security breach notification law. These are laws that require some type of notice to the public when a company or government loses personal information. And I'm also doing a lot of work on identity theft, trying to figure out if there are ways we can shape policy to reduce the incidence and severity of the crime. Those are two really important issues that we're going to talk about. So why don't we jump right in a little bit. And uh, I enjoyed reading your article, Identity Theft, Making the Known Unknowns Known. <laughs> and, and I love this, this quote that you took that you had here from uh, Don Rumsfeld. This is great. It says, uh, let's see, this was hysterical. It says, this is by Don Rumsfeld. Reports say that something hasn't happened. Wait. Reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, quote, and it really does um, explain some of the basic problems in identity theft, because we know um, we have so much anecdotal information. Um, uh, but we do need great, uh, better statistical information so we can think about how to reduce uh, the crime. Okay, so let's just jump in right in there. You had a, it was a, a great paper that you wrote. And let's talk about, so um, what, what did you find out about these surveys on identity theft? What are they saying? Well, the, the s different surveys are saying different things. And, uh, you know, the, the, the survey that really rocked the boat was created by the Federal Trade Commission in 2003. And it found that just an astronomical number of Americans, 10 million Americans, had been affected by identity theft. And the cost of the economy was, was uh, uh, close to $50 billion. In recent years, um, private companies have tried to remake that survey. They've tried to uh, replicate it. Um, and what they found in, in the last year is that identity theft is on the decline. And I explain in the paper in detail why their observation, why their methods are not very good. The Javelin how, study is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Uh -huh. The Javelin study, which I think has a number of biases that is predisposing it to finding uh, that, that identity theft is on the decline. You know, the, the Javelin report is actually sponsored by a bank. And we know that the banks really want the public not to think of identity theft as a big problem. Right. What did they say? It had reduced to 8.9 million? Yes. And, um, uh, it, and at the same time, a, a study came out from a different group, a consulting group, that found a, a significant increase. Gartner. In, yeah, the Gartner study said 15 million, right? Yeah. And, and, and not only that, Gartner show, um, uh, found that 
there's a more severe type of identity theft occurring where accounts are getting taken over, bank accounts are being taken over. And in those situations, uh, you might uh, lose money or you might have no money to pay your bills while you're waiting to be refunded. Right, right. The, more of the bank fraud where it's being siphoned out of your account directly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so what are some of the 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 strengths of these studies? Anything good about this at all? Actually, I think this, the studies do have a lot of value. And the, the problem is, is that the, the results that are always promoted in the press releases and are always hard-pedaled to the public are the ones about, are, are the most questionable findings in the survey. And, uh, but the, the surveys do have other information in them uh, that are valuable, the, the trends that can be tracked over time. And so the surveys do have an intrinsic value, I, but I think that there needs to be um, uh, a different approach to figure out what's really happening in the cr- with the crime. One of the things that really bothered me, I think it was in the, um, the Javelin study, was when they were talking about how many of the identity theft victims were victimized by family members. That was a... a, a huge overstatement. Do you remember that, where they were saying that half of all identity theft was committed by family members, which really was not the case? And that was uh, disturbing to me, because most of the time it's not a family member, right? Yeah, and Javelin uses a a very questionable statistical uh, tool to um, come to that conclusion. And so only a very small number of identity uh, theft victims even know how their data were stolen. Um, but when they do know, many of them do say that it was a friend or a family member or a roommate or something like that. And so what they do is they basically multiply that very small number of people who know um, and, it, and project the result across the entire survey. Right. Now, the statistical problem here is that in order to do that, you have to prove that the data are exchangeable. There's actually a, you know, a body of theory and methods behind doing that, and they haven't done it. And when you ask Javelin to do it, they simply won't do it. Um, (laughs) I remember when the Federal Trade Commission came out, and I think it was uh, in 2003, they came up with a percentage of people that knew who did it to them. It was about 12%. But I remember being part of that survey then, because I had been a victim before, and I later found out who did this to me but I never knew her. She wasn't any relation to me. So the way the question was asked is, how many do you know who did this to you? And then I found, yes, I found out later. I didn't know the person at the time, but I found out later. So the way the question was even asked was really ambiguous. Do you know what I'm saying, Chris? So it wasn't really a very good way because some people do find out who, who did it to them if they are able to do the research and they get law enforcement to help them. So I think just it was skewed the way the question was even asked. Yeah, and I think some people say they know who the uh, suspect was and they don't really know. Right. Or they've been a victim multiple times, and uh, and someone might have used their credit card number, but another person might have done something more serious. And so, you know, we're in an area where there are so many unknowns, and we're doing the wrong thing. We're asking individuals, we're asking victims about the crime, when we really should be asking businesses, because the businesses um, that are actually lending the accounts are in the, a better position to know who is victimized, and who is doing the victimization. 
So Chris, you mean that they're in a better position to know after they're contacted by the victim, correct? Yes, un- yes unfortunately, because many banks themselves don't even know how much they're losing to identity theft. Because if they have an account that's not being paid, they, by default, treat it as bad debt. They, they, they by default, label the account as, as being owned by a deadbeat. Um, and some, in some of those cases, that account has really been taken over by an identity thief. And unless the victim calls up and tells them, um, uh, they won't the bank itself won't know. Right, and isn't there an advantage for a company to call it bad debt for tax purposes and for their stockholders rather than say that it's fraud? I think that there is an advantage for stockholders. I don't know that there's a tax advantage because one can write off fraud losses as... Um, as, as well a, as the bad debt, yeah. As the bad yeah, debt. Yeah. But with respect to stockholders, I think that the answer is yes, I you know, I, I hear anecdotally from law enforcement that there are banks that are losing a lot of money to identity theft, and they're hiding it because if their stockholders knew about it, they could be sued for waste. Um, in the same way that that many companies waste money on on executive perks or on other unnecessary things, right? Um, uh, th- there could be a lawsuit against banks for the amount of money that is 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 wasted to identity theft. Right. You know, and and before we go into more about how you think that companies should be reporting this, the reason I wanted to bring up about the fact that most of the time the the, uh, company themselves itself does not know until a victim contacts them is because that's the issue with the security breach notification law as well. If if we say that the company is in the best position to determine if there's identity theft, then then that would make it get put it in their hands to uh, notify when they think it's reasonable. And and that's a big concern I have is that whenever there's a security breach of uh, information that is sensitive and it's acquired by a you know an unauthorized person. I think that there should be notification. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that with you. I know you feel like that too. Am I correct? Well, we're working on security breach notification laws, and I'm not certain what the you know what the right notification standard is uh, when, when there's been a breach. Um, but we do know that the security breach laws have had a great effect, and that it's made it easier for chief security officers and people who are in charge of security to justify their budget and to invest in security. Absolutely. And they've been encrypting more and they've been getting investing in quite a bit more uh, software and hardware fixes. So you're right. That's terrific. My concern is at least me, someone who hears from victims every day, that most of them notify the the companies and the companies still don't believe them until they prove that they were a victim of identity theft. So it's rare, very rare, that if they're a victim of, for example, identity takeover, takeover they might know because maybe the company will say this is, you know, the neural network showed us that you're spending in a, you know, a strange way. But if they're the victim of true name fraud where someone is totally taken over their identity, then most of the time the creditors uh, don't find out until the victim says, hey, this isn't me, you know? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And the victim is in this bizarre circumstance where they have to prove that they're not the person making the charges. So, um, so they're often I, victims that I speak with often say that they feel guilty or they feel that they had to justify something that they didn't do. That right. they, you know, the actions of the actual thief um, are sometimes attributed to them, and um, and it's difficult to convince other people that uh, you are a victim sometimes. And the, the danger here on the federal level is that some of the bills that are, that are um, I- introduced in Congress would create an extremely narrow definition of identity theft. And if you were to call, a, uh, if you were to complain and say that you were an identity theft victim, it would only count if you had filed a police report. And it would only uh, count if it were new account identity f- uh, fraud uh, rather than just account takeover. Um, so th- there, are, um, uh, there are real risks uh, legislatively on these issues coming down the road. Right. So let's get back to this study that you, or this paper that you wrote, which was great. And you talk about synthetic identity theft. Why don't you talk about what that is? Well, synthetic identity theft is a, a difficult thing to understand, but it, um, for, for reasons I can elaborate on later, it actually proves a hypothesis that I think many of us in the consumer advocacy community thought was true. And um, and basically, synthetic identity theft is, is a type of crime where you make up an identity, and you might use a little bit of real information from real people, but you'd also use some fake information, maybe a fake address or maybe a fake name that you would combine with a real Social Security number. And so you actually grow this identity. You, you can go out and get a cell phone in this identity, and you can get other services in this identity, um, and so you groom this identity so that it has a credit record. And then once it has a credit record, you can start applying for credit cards in this false identity's name. And um, the, the problem with uh, synthetic identity theft is one of the big problems is that there's no clear victim sometimes. Uh, there's no way to tell. There's no one uh, who might receive a bill and, and say, wait a minute, I've become a, a victim of identity theft. And and call the bank. So it's a very, it's a bizarre crime, and, it, and to understand it requires some um, knowledge of the credit reporting industry. Uh, but the, the industry analyses say that the crime is on the rise and that it, it accounts for the majority of identity theft losses. Yeah, you know, Chris, I get a lot of people who call me who will say to me that their social security number was used, but not their name and obviously not their address. And the, the sad thing or the frightening thing about synthetic identity theft is that it will eventually come back to bite the real victim if the social security number was used. And that's because, let's say, it won't appear necessarily on the victim's credit report. It'll maybe appear on a new credit report. Do you know what I'm saying? And so when they finally, when finally a creditor says, wait a minute, this is the social security number, when they finally find out that it belongs to someone else, a different name, they eventually find them, which could be more than two years after it began, or, you know, it could be a a great deal of time. And I've had several victims of criminal identity theft whose social security number was used but a different name was used, 
or this will happen with uh, terrorists. Maybe they'll use it, somebody else's social security number. There's a lot of reasons to do that to get a job, for example. We have a lot of victims who their social security number was used, but a different name was used, but it still went through. And then eventually the IRS came to get this one woman about 10 years after her social was used. So sometimes the synthetic identity theft catches up, but it catches up later. You yeah, know? I think there will be a longer, I think you're right, I think there's going to be a longer horizon to, to recognize these incidents. And in the meantime, it, it, you know, I, I mentioned that we had this hypothesis, and we didn't know whether or not it was true, and I think synthetic identity theft lends weight to it. And that, basically that hypothesis is, is that a lot of creditors aren't verifying identities. Uh, that is, when you go and you apply for credit, they're not actually checking to make sure that you are who you say you are. Exactly. Um, what they're doing is they're verifying the Social Security number. They're making sure that the Social Security number was issued in the right date range, but they're not making sure that that Social Security number belongs to you. Right. And that is a huge oversight. It's, a, it, it's terrible practice, but it actually explains a lot of identity theft. And what about all these red flag rules? You know, I thought we were going to get from the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, I thought we were going to get some significant change in that in which a person would apply for credit, the creditor would get the credit report, and they would see that there's no match. You know, there was maybe a different address or there was some a number, one number was off or a name was spelled differently or something, that they would then have to do some affirmative action, take an action to verify that this person is really the person that they say they are by calling or writing or sending a postcard like the Postal Service does. What, what happened with that? Well, it's taken years for the red flag guidelines to develop. And I think the general consensus around from the advocates is that they don't have enough teeth to be effective. Right. Um, you know, the what's I, I think one way to look at this problem is that identity theft is a cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. And it, so there is a level of comfort with this crime that actually exists. There's, you know, there's somewhere in the books uh, a business will say, we're going to lose this amount of money to identity theft. And if we change our policies, if we make it, if we spend more time verifying identities, we're going to lose some legitimate customers. People are going to get frustrated. They're going to go somewhere else and, and buy something, or they're going to complain that they've been delayed. And so they tolerate some identity theft in order to hold on to customers. Um, and of course, that creates externalities that are, are passed on to, on to victims. So the red you know, a lot of what was going on with the with the red flag guidelines was uh, uh, in the business lobby was was uh, pushing against them because they did not want strict rules that uh, would slow down credit transactions. You know, you are so right. I was having lunch. I did a program with a general counsel for a major credit card company, and we were talking. And I said, "Well, why don't you send a postcard? You know, why don't you send a postcard if there is a." address that is a discrepancy between the address of the application and the address 
on the credit report. Why don't you send a postcard just like the uh, U.S. Postal Service does if you move? You know how they do that, Chris, because you yeah. moved recently. You know how they send a postcard to the old address and new address and say, if you did not move, notify us. And I said, why don't you do that? And they said, exactly what you just said. He told me, he said, Mari, people don't want to wait. They want instant credit. They want to get it fast. They don't want to be hassled, and we don't have that much fraud. And I said, yeah, well, why don't you get the process going, and at the same time that you're processing the credit card, why don't you immediately send out a postcard as well? Therefore, even if you did send out a postcard after the card was in the mail, at least you'd have some chance to minimize your damages and the damages for the victim. So that never went anywhere. I don't think that went too far. Yeah, and, and I think it's, again, it comes back to the cost of doing business. It, you know, it costs an extra 29 cents to send out the postcard, and, and you have to operate a call center when, when, uh, when, when people get the card and they actually haven't applied for the, the account. Um, so, you know, it comes down to uh, cost of doing business. And so what we have to do as policymakers is figure out how to take the costs that are passed on to victims and and push them back onto creditors. Security breach notification laws were one way of doing that. Right. Um, by saying, if you're going to have, if you have a security breach, you're going to have to tell the public, and it's going to be embarrassing. And you, regulators might start investigating you if if it's a particularly bad breach. And we need to do something similar in identity theft. We need to uh, find a way to put back pressure onto companies so they'll be willing to do things like send out a twenty-nine cent postcard (laughs) to protect your identity. So, what is your proposal? Well, what I've proposed in a recent paper is to simply require all lending institutions, and so that would include uh, banks um, and companies that do uh, uh, wire services like PayPal and Western Union, um, to report to the government whenever they have incidents of identity theft. Would you also say same thing for utility companies, anyone who issues some kind of credit? Yeah, it, it, it basically defines lending institution pretty broadly, because in part because one of the first vectors for identity theft, especially in the synthetic area, is uh, cell phones. So uh, technically, when you get a cell phone, you're actually getting a credit contract. Sure. Um, and they're doing a credit check on you. And so companies that are extending credit should report basic statistics to the government about how many incidents of identity theft they have, the type of identity theft that occurred, and the amount of harm it caused. Now, the reasoning behind this is that if we had these basic statistics, um, it would become pretty clear which lenders are problematic. And I actually think that competition would arise between uh, among the various lenders, because no bank would want to be number one for identity theft. Right, no, right. no bank would want to be, you know, the most risky bank to do business with. Um, I, I, so I do think that the, the big banks would compete pretty vigorously to bring their numbers down. And it would be a good marketing tool. It's like sometimes I tell people, hey, you should use privacy as a marketing tool, that you protect privacy more than others you have opt-in or whatever. So the same thing could happen with this. The banks could say, 
we value you so much that we are doing everything we can to, uh, you know, to stop identity theft and look at where we are on the list. You know, <laughs> we're not number one, we're number 50 or number 150 or 1,000, whatever. Yeah, so, exactly yeah. exactly right. That, you know, it could, be, um, it could be weighted based on how many customers you have because, of, you know, of course, large banks like Bank of America are going to have more fraud than others. Right. Um, so it could be... Percentages, then. Yeah, it could be the percentages could be there. And you could make a choice. And the, the other advantage, in addition to the idea of marketing, you know, we're number one, we have better uh, uh, practices, is uh, that it keeps government out of uh, uh, the banks. Um, that is, if you have reporting, the government doesn't have to come up with guidelines to fight identity theft. Um, because the, the pressure, the embarrassment of, of, of being on the top ten list for worst identity theft banks um, will, will drive banks to have better practices and, and to innovate, just like the security breach notification did. You know, security breach notification does not tell businesses how to protect data. What it says instead is, you figure out how to protect the data, but if you screw up, you're going to have to tell the public. But Chris, the one, the one bit of uh, ca the carrot, as well as the stick in the security breach notification law in California is, if you encrypt the data, then you're off the hook and you don't have to notify. So it basically does, in a kind of underhanded way, so to speak, tell companies to encrypt. If you don't encrypt and you have a security breach, you are going to have to notify. But if you encrypt the data, you won't have to. So there is that carrot and that stick. I wonder what kind of carrot you could give for your idea, because you've got the stick in there. What is the carrot? Well, let me ask you, what do you think about that carrot of encryption? Do you think it's a good idea? Well, I, I was involved in all of this, and I, I thought it was a good idea because I thought it was a way to help. I think the problem with the encryption is that if you have a, un, an unscrupulous insider who has the key to decrypt, then, of course, that doesn't work. You know, And if they say that 40%, I've heard that there was about 40% of security breaches are caused by dirty insiders, then you've got a problem. So that's maybe the next step is that there, that has to be the loophole, that if there is um, a security breach and it was encrypted, but it was acquired by someone who had the key, then you still have to notify. Yeah, and I would argue in those situations that it's no longer encrypted if the breach was caused by someone with a key. Right, you even have, better, yeah. You have to just have to assume that if they have the key and they stole the data, they've unlocked the data. Right. Um, you know, in my plan, you know, to answer your question, there aren't many carrots, but banks are actually used to reporting data to the government. There is a federal agency uh, that all it does is inspect banks and get statistics from banks about their solvency. So what we'd be talking about would be just adding a couple more lines of reporting uh, uh, to what's already done. Um, so banks already report on how much money they have, what their investments are, what their costs are, but nowhere do they break out and say, we're losing X amount to identity theft. So what, and you were talking about, and I forgot which agency it was, wasn't the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which, which, com which agency were you suggesting, not the Federal Trade Commission? What? It's the Federal Financial Institution, um, 
examination council. And and how good are they on on actually reporting stuff for consumers? Well, the data are not easy to understand uh, generally. Uh, banks are complex, and they in, they have complex investments and um, uh, and uh, uh, subsidiaries. They have all sorts of other. Um, um, uh, complexities to them, so that you can go to the website at ffiec.gov and look up reports on your bank. Um, not all of them are going to be easy to understand, but I do think that statistics on identity theft will be easier uh, uh, to understand. They're much more binary. They're they're less complex. And of course, people like me will take those data and mine them and and try to try to find out what's going on in this field. Well, thank God for you. But what about the Federal Trade Commission? They were charged, when I testified in Congress back in, what, 1999, um, and they were, the Federal Trade Commission was charged with the issue of identity theft. That's why they created their identity theft website. How about reporting to the FTC? Well, banks already have provisions to report to this other agency. I see. The, the other thing is is that it, it actually becomes more politically palatable for the banks to report to this other agency. Um, uh, banks are servants to many masters. There's about seven or eight different federal agencies that are involved in the regulation of banks. Um, and so it, it's easier for them to actually have reporting to uh, the place they're already going to regularly. You know, we were talking before the show started that I had been asking for several years, talking to Betsy Broder from the Federal Trade Commission and Joanna Crane, and asking them, since they already take identity theft complaints from victims, and they've had literally, you know, several, I don't know how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that have reported this to them, why don't they make you know, just like they do their other statistics of how many people are from Colorado or how many people are from California and which cities, and they do ask their complainants, "What do you know? Which companies um, you were victimized by, or do you know which companies issued fraudulent accounts?" And they they tell them, and I've been asking for that, and the and the response I got was. As the Federal Trade Commission, we do know who they are, and we talk to those companies, and we tell them, hey, you know, did you know that you have the most amount of complaints than any other company that, you know, that is reported to us, or did you know you're high up there? They do this kind of on the side and talk to them and say, hey, you know, you have quite a bit of uh, complaints about not resolving problems, et cetera, et cetera. And I have asked them to make those public. So they do have that information, Chris, and they just haven't been sharing it with the public in their surveys. So what do you think of that? Well, you know, the, the Federal Trade Commission is um, an it's a, it's a agency that's in a very difficult position. And it's, it's hard. I think it's hard for people outside Washington to understand that agencies have cultures and they have uh, different amounts of power. And there are very powerful agencies, and then there are agencies that, for various reasons, can't be that aggressive. Um, the Federal Trade Commission is one where, historically, when it has flexed its muscles, 
uh, Congress has, has intervened and taken away power from it. So the Federal Trade Commission has to be very careful and circumspect in what it does, uh, because so many times in the past 30 years or so, uh, Congress has taken away money or power from the agency when it does its job. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the opposite of a, an agency like a Department of Justice. The more the Department of Justice does its job, uh, the more Congress re- rewards it. The more, the more it prosecutes criminals, the, the more uh, money it gets, the more resources it gr- gets. With, a, with an agency like the Federal Trade Commission, it can offend business interests. And those business interests can actually lobby to, to uh, restrict the commission. Wow. Yeah. And Chris, Chris, from you coming from Washington, D.C. and knowing that area, I really trust your judgment on that one because, you know, you lived there, you were right in the heart of all that, and you kind of understand the politics a lot better than I do. We're speaking with Chris Hoofnigel, who is the senior attorney at the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic at the Center for Clinical Education at the University of California up north in Berkeley. He is a privacy expert, and really I think he understands the, the pulse of the nation as well, and he's with us talking about some of the issues about why identity theft isn't being uh, really addressed to reduce its numbers, and also he has some ideas for fixes. So let's get back to this issue of the Federal Trade Commission. I happen to really love the Federal Trade Commission. I think they do great work. They have they took some strong action on security breaches, Chris, in, in recent years, like with Choice Point, and they've done other uh, important um, consent decrees. Can't this be something that they can address if we, I mean, can the GAO, the Government Accounting Office, can they be um you know, encouraged to maybe suggest that the Federal Trade Commission make those numbers public? Well, th- there are various ways we could try to make those numbers public, and one way would be uh, to uh, put a provision in the legislation that actually provides the budget for the FTC for them to report. Um, so there's a number of ways to, to go after that problem. Um, but yeah, you're right, the, the, the Federal Trade Commission does wonderful work on a number of areas. They've been very aggressive on security in, in the last five years, as, as you've noted. And in part, that's because they got signals from the Bush administration that said, it's okay for you to work hard on security. But in other respects, they've gotten signals to not be so aggressive. And uh, uh, online privacy is one area, um, and advertising is another. Right. I mean, I I support business. I'm a businesswoman myself, so obviously we don't want to put too much emphasis, but wouldn't it work the same way if if the Federal Trade Commission issued a yearly report about the incidence of identity theft in various companies? Don't you think that would put a tremendous amount of pressure on these companies to not want to be number one and yet not have to report it themselves? I mean, I really wonder when you've got Enron and you've got HP and all the scandals that we've had are they really going to report? I mean, some really good companies, yeah, they're going to report if they don't have much. But the but the ones that aren't uh, reporting, maybe they're hiding things. What do you think about that? I actually have a lot of confidence that that especially public companies will report honestly. Um, the the uh, there is a culture of compliance among a lot of companies, and 
um, uh, that culture of compliance can be infectious. I mean, it, uh, companies that are complying well can uh, get uh, competitors to do so as well. Now, your your idea about the the Federal Trade Commission data is great. I actually didn't know until you told me that that, <laughs> that the Federal Trade Commission had those lines, and I'll be calling them too to try to to try to get that data. And, Let's and, do it. Yeah, that might be a, a good way of 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 going after this problem. I I would note that that you know one of the things we think about a lot in at the university is observation error and observation biases. And one of the one of the issues with with getting data from the Federal Trade Commission is that is that the data come from consumers who've had experiences that are bad enough that they are actually going to the Federal Trade Commission to complain. Right. And so the the reason why I thought it make more sense to get data directly from the banks is that we would get information on all incidents, even when there's no victim when there's a, a synthetic identity theft, but also when there are minor incidences that the consumer isn't motivated enough to complain about. Right, and, and it's true that a lot of people who are so overwhelmed with identity theft won't complain to the Federal Trade Commission because they know that the Federal Trade Commission says right on their website, we will not be able to take your case as an individual. We can refer you, but basically they... The people that come to me come to me because they've gotten no help from the Federal Trade Commission except the, the wonderful data that they have on their website. How about law enforcement? I've also been saying for years, and I'm a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, and I've interviewed our economic crimes unit, work with them somewhat closely. And what I've been asking for for a long time, even in my testimony, was that law enforcement would need not only to take a report, but to also list, maybe somehow have some kind of data that they put together as to what companies um, have been part of this identity theft ruse. And I know that they know it because the requirement for victims to clean up the mess is their police report has to list the accounts that were compromised. You know, if they were either their own or, let's say, someone opened up a Chase account in your name, the the identity theft report or the police report has to list what companies on your credit report are fraudulent. So that's another option. Yeah, and I think law enforcement has a lot of data on uh, identity theft that they have difficulty uh, marshalling into reports for various reasons. And I'm also hearing for law enforcement that they, that um, some banks are reluctant to participate in the investigations because it reveals that the bank was swindled for a lot of money. Um, and uh, they don't want to, to go public with the fact that they lost X amount of dollars to a certain identity th- uh, thief. Right. And not only that, the companies don't want to, it's their fraud department, and they would rather spend their money on advertising and their marketing department than, you know, increase their fraud department. And to work with law enforcement, you're going to have to increase your fraud department. But I'm getting back to just the identity theft report. Rather than investigating, we now have in California, as you know, Chris, you must get a police report 
if you're a victim, you can get a police report. There's, they must give it to you even if they're not going to investigate. So even the police report itself would provide the kind of data that you're talking about, wouldn't it? Yeah, it sounds like it would. And, you know, the, 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 the issue there is just a matter of, of aggregating um, uh, police reports, which, is, which, you know, is essentially the policies for access to, uh, to police reports vary um, uh, county by county, uh, city by city. Um, but that is another vector of where we could get better data on on the crime. Yeah, I mean, even if we started it in California, because now we're going toward having a a more universal identity theft report, and that I were I've been asking for that nationally as well, is talking about having a uniform identity theft report, and that way, if you had that, and it had the data questions in it that the that the police had to include which was you know what fraud accounts were open in the name of the victim you would have that information and that information could then if there were resources that's the problem a lot of these guys these um agencies don't even have the resources to do these reports they'd have to be provided the resources right yeah and and, and that's that's actually where we're the university can come in because we can do grants and we can collect the data and uh, and uh, and and report on it. So one of the wonderful things about this interview with you is it's <laughs> given me more ideas of how we can get to where we want to go. And that's you know and that's basically to have some type of objective way of thinking about this crime. And you know, if we did it in California, and I'm I'm kind of getting excited for getting I'm in this interview as well. But if we did it, in, if we started it in California with all the law enforcement agencies in California, for example, that would be a great start. And then maybe we could get the Federal Trade Commission, who works with Sentinel, and and really coordinates all the law enforcement agencies. If we could then expand it to uh, federally, then you wouldn't have to put this pressure on the uh, businesses that I don't think, I don't know, maybe I'm cynical, but I, I just am afraid they're, they're not going to really be as um, forthcoming as, as you would hope they would be, or that the agency that collects it would, would be under pressure to kind of uh, make it look better than it does. Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the common interests here that, that agencies and many businesses, and I think that we all have, is that we want to maintain confidence in the financial sector and in banks. And there, I, one of the reasons why I think identity theft reporting is resisted and, and why, as you note, certain institutions might not report correctly is they don't want, it, they don't want the public to lose faith in, their, in them. Right. And, 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 and security breach notification, is in, for instance, is an area where uh, consumers have become more jaded and more concerned about their personal data. And... Uh, there's a general feeling that uh, in, in the business community that you don't want people feeling that way. Uh, you don't want people um, uh, not doing business because they're worried about identity theft or security breaches. Exactly. So I want to introduce you again. We're talking with uh, Chris Hoofnigel, who is a an attorney with the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic. Uh, at the Center for Clinical Education at the University of California in Berkeley. A great guy. He came from being the West Coast Director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center. He's brilliant. He's brainstorming ideas with me, and I just honor him so much. Let's talk about what you're doing then. Let's kind of switch gears, and we got some ideas, so I'll be happy to talk with you offline about some of the other ideas I have with regard to uh, how we can get some of those statistics, if you want, Chris. 
But let's talk about what are your suggested proposals for a real federal security breach notification law? Well, one of our principal recommendations is that um, there be centralized reporting of breaches. And many of, when I say that, I mean that when a company has a breach, it should send a, a, a basic information about the breach to some type of consumer protection agency, um, the Federal Trade Commission or, or perhaps even the Attorney General. Some states already require this. Uh, New York and New Jersey and North Carolina, for instance, if, if you're operating in those states and you have data from customers in those states, you actually have to send a letter to the, uh, to the Attorney General saying, we've had a breach and um, 100 people from New York have been affected, and this is what we're doing about it, and this is how the breach occurred. Um, and that type of reporting, I think, will be really important in shaping security investment and uh, in preventing breaches in the future. I think what's something that's also key is thinking very carefully about what the trigger should be. That is, what threshold must be met before one has to give notice of a security breach. Um, the president's task force on identity theft has recommended a very high trigger, one that requires that the security breach caused a substantial risk of identity theft. Um, and uh, That's ridiculous. It's <laughs> a very high standard of proof because most people who have breaches don't even know what happened. Right. They don't know how the data was stolen. They don't know who stole it. And they don't know who's do what, what they're doing with it. Exactly. They, they might have just stolen the laptop because they like the laptop. They might have stolen it because they want the data, and no one really knows. And so under the, the president's plan is very, it, uh, it, uh, frankly, just anti-consumer. Right. Um, in, it's done in the name of protecting consumers. They want this high standard. Uh, they argue because if you were to get lots of notices of breaches, you would you would not pay attention to them anymore. You would become desensitized. I'm so That's tired of hearing of that, but you know what the joke of that is? Even if that, let's say that were true, which I don't think it is, but let's say it were. The reality is, is maybe the the consumer even if the consumer were jaded, the companies aren't. And look at them scrambling. I mean, I have talked with so many attorneys from Washington, D.C., who advise companies and, and all over the country. And what have they done? They said this has been the, the strongest measure that has gotten companies, just like you said, Chris, to actually get off, off their butts and do something and really take security and personal data of their consumers and their customers and take it seriously so even if people are jaded companies aren't because they still don't want to have that in the publicity yeah I, I think that's right and i think the you know the other problem with this theory is that just because some people become desensitized doesn't mean others wouldn't and we don't take away people's rights because some people don't assert them right, you, know? Right. you know you wouldn't lose your right to vote let's just say you sat out the election Right. You wouldn't lose your right to vote because you were desensitized because you didn't care about voting that year. <laughs> Good and point. So it it is kind of, it is a, a I think a weird way of 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 looking at this problem and I think furthermore they have no data to support that argument. There is no, there's not a single study out there that shows that that people get desensitized to more notices. And in fact, when you when you read the industry analyses, um, the industry is really afraid of the second breach. And their internal analyses say, you can have one breach, 
and your customers will forgive you. Right. But if you have a second one, that's when your customers are going to start canceling their accounts. And that actually, that argument, that, that internal observation that they're making runs counter yes. to this other argument that people become desensitized. In fact, they become enraged when they get more than one. Uh, notice. Right. And, and, <laughs> so. and you know what? Yeah. And, and, you know, Larry Poneman, I'm one of the fellows there, and he's done several studies that we've talked about on this show about how people really are less trusting of companies and the internet and everything else because of these security breaches. So it is having an impact on consumers. And I know he has a recent study that, that we're going to talk about in a few weeks when he comes on. So truly, I, I think it is a, a very strange uh, argument that I have heard from so many people in industry. Well, people don't care anymore. But they're saying that because the companies still care. They care enough that they want to keep it hidden as much as possible. They don't want to have to publicize this at all. So so are you? what are you guys suggesting since you're doing this research? Are you, is there anything broken with the California law except for maybe the encryption issue? I mean, is is California that standard? It's become kind of the national standard, even though there's, what, 35 states now that have security breach laws? I think it's 37. 37? Okay. Yeah, they, they keep on spreading. There are great innovations in other states. So, for instance, California, California's law is only triggered when you lose data like a Social Security number or a driver's license number, or a credit card number. Or account number, yeah. yeah. Other states are broadening those definitions. So if, for instance, you lose a biometric, let's say you collect fingerprints from your customers, well, if you lose those, you should probably tell. Right. Uh, medical information, um, signatures, in some cases, contact information is included. And now, that might sound like an overreaction, but if you are a victim of domestic violence, or, right. or you're a celebrity, or... For some reason. Yeah, or you're a judge or something. Or you're a yeah. judge or a police officer. Your home contact information is sensitive. And even under California law, that's recognized. Yes. Uh, uh, that there's, there's sensitivity there. So other states are broadening the types of information that qualify. Other states are requiring uh, reporting, which I think is another good innovation. Right. I think one of the holes in the California law is it should allow a safe harbor that is, it should allow businesses to avoid notice when they have technological measures that destroy data uh, when it's stolen. So you could imagine the laptop that when it's stolen, it knows it's stolen, and it, it, it erases its own hard drive. Right, right. There, there should be provisions so that that type of technology can develop. Right, right. Well, I mean, that would not be a difficult fix to do for California law, you know? I don't think that would be a difficult fix. It seems to me, though, from what I've seen in the federal legislation, um, there has been a great dilution of at least even our law, right? I mean, that's what's what's pending right now. Yeah, oh, the federal laws, no, the undoubtedly, legislation, would, yeah. would, would, uh, the federal, the, the bills pending in Congress, even the strongest ones would in some ways dilute California's law. In some ways, it expands it. So uh, the, the, the leading bill in the Senate is probably Senator Feinstein's bill, and it, has, um, it, it broadens the definition of identifiers. It broadens the trigger data that are protected by these laws. So that's important. But then it, it introduces what's known as a risk standard, meaning that some risk of harm must be shown 
uh, before notice is given. And so it dilutes it in that way. Now, see, that gets back to the issue that we talked about almost an hour ago, which is if they say the risk, how did they know about the risk when, they, when it's usually the victim that tells them it was the risk? That's, that's exactly the problem. There is a, uh, uh, sometimes there's no way of telling what the risk is. And so some of these bills require the business to prove a negative. That is, the business has to prove that there is no risk. And so if the, under that standard, if there is no evidence, the business has to give notice. Right. And that might be the, uh, it's not a, a, a very pretty solution, but that might be the best solution we can get. And then what about, what about then if there is a risk of harm, like let's say Choice Point had done that, and then they found out about, you know, 700 or whatever amount of people that were injured, what would happen then? Would there be huge sanctions then if they found, if they said there was no risk and they asserted that there was no risk, and then they find out there was a huge risk? Well, it dep- the, the different bills deal with this problem in different ways. Some require that the, the, that the risk assessment that the business performs be submitted to a federal agency. Right. And the federal agency will have time to review it and, and possibly reverse the decision that the business made. One of the bills creates criminal liability if you cover up a security breach. Yes. It's very difficult to exercise that criminal liability. Right. Um, and it's very easy to squeeze out of it. So it sounds pretty tough, but in practice, <laughs> it'd be very hard to, to prosecute. Um, I'm not so sure that we want to move towards criminal, criminalizing. No, I stuff. think money. Money counts. I think money, yes. Money <laughs> counts, and, um, and it's... it's uh, it, an easier way to create the right incentives um, to, to deal with these problems. We only have a couple minutes left, Chris, and I could talk to you all day. But tell me, so so do you enjoy living up there in San Francisco? Do you miss D.C. at all? I don't miss D.C. very much. <laughs> um, San Francisco is a lovely place to live. I like the people here and the weather and the outdoors. It's, it's really great. A different so, change of pace. So you're so. a California man right now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're actually we're we are doing a poll of Californians this month. We've actually commissioned a public opinion poll through the University of California. So if you live in California, there's a chance that you'll be called and and asked a whole bunch of questions about privacy. And uh, we're going to share those results with the public in a month or two from now. Well, you know, when we had on Robert Ellis Smith recently, and, uh, you know, every year they do this uh, survey to find out which is the state with the best privacy practices and privacy laws, we always come out number one. So you're in the right place. Yeah. And we're thrilled about that. So I want you to give your website and how people can find out more about what um, Berkeley is doing on privacy. Tell us how we can do that. Well, the law school is online at www.law.berkeley.edu. And the law school is doing a lot of work on privacy. We have great scholars here, including Deirdre Mulligan and Paul Schwartz and James Rule. I don't know if you remember James Rule, but he's here uh, for the semester, and as is Colin Bennett. Great. Oh, Colin, yeah, he was on our show, too. Yeah, so we have this incredible privacy team here. And most of our privacy work can be found on the Samuelson Clinic website, which is samuelsonclinic.org, all one word. 
Well, you know, we have a lot of students here at the campus. That we're sitting on the campus of the University of California, Irvine. Maybe they'll want to come up and do a semester there or maybe do graduate study with you. Chris, you'd be wonderful. Yeah, we, we take about 15 students a semester. And so students at UC Irvine, we're happily, happy to, t to take them if they apply. Okay, well, Lloyd is saying it's time to go. Thank you so much, Chris. We will do this again. We will catch up, and we can catch up offline, too. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday on Privacy Piracy from 5 to 6 p.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. There you can see and listen to our previous interviews. And you can download podcasts. And we will see you next week. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.